Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife took Sarai, took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He went into Hagar. She conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sariah treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress. Submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants, so they shall be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who had spoke to her, Thou art a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahiroi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar born Ishmael to him. When writing biographies as important people, authors usually fall into one of two ditches. One ditch is occupied those authors by those authors who write of their subjects as if they were great heroes as if they did not possess any of the flaws that every human possesses, as if they were perfect and superhuman. The other ditch is occupied by people who seem to be obsessed with dethroning the heroes, and they write about all of their flaws and all of their failures and their human foibles. They are iconoclastic. They want them off the pedestal. We've seen both of these, haven't we, in books that have been written about 
the fathers of our country. Prior to the 1960s, almost every biography of Washington or Hamilton or Jefferson or Adam or the others were biographies that presented these individuals as great and wonderful people, virtually flawless. In the 1960s, a whole different genre began to come forth critical of all of these. Every flaw, every fall, as if there was an effort to somehow remove these men from their pedestal and in some way to remove America from the pedestal upon which it had been placed. The Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture, is neither an idealist nor a defamer. (laughs) But the Holy Spirit writes the stories accurately, presenting the facts, presenting the foibles, presenting the good points, really reporting behavior, and interesting, usually without any comment. But it is when we read the results of the decisions and the results of the behavior that we see, really, was it good or bad? Was it really right or wrong? And so it is with the story we read this morning in Genesis chapter 16. The account of Abram, Sarai, Heraga, Hagar, Ishmael. This story has a lot to teach us. It touches our heart. At the same time, it is a source of admonition and a source of encouragement. It's a story of tragedy and God's grace, and it also contains the origin of much of the conflict that we see in the world today. Now, the story began many generations before. Remember when God spoke to Abram, and earlier, by the way, by this time, early in those days, it was Abram and Sarai rather than Abraham and Sarah. Their name was later changed. But while Abram was in the land of his ancestors, this word of God came to him. Now Jehovah said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to a land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And so Abram obeyed. He left the land and he went into the land that God had shown to him. He took with him Lot, his nephew. He took his wife and, of course, all of Lot's herds and belongings. And God had said, I will make you a great nation. Decades went by. Nothing happened. Until one day, Abram's nephew, Lot, separated from him and took his crops and his shepherds down into the verdant valley where Abram and his flocks and shepherds stayed on the hillside. After that separation, God spoke for the second time. Jehovah said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth. I will give it to you. 
And Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the yokes of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to Jehovah. And so, if he was going to become a mighty nation, he had to have offspring. The decades went by. Sarah did not become pregnant. They had no children. They tried and they tried and they tried, but no offspring. After many decades, discouraging decades, no doubt, God appeared to Abram again in a vision. And in response to that vision, Abram reminded God, you're telling me all of this, but I don't have any children. After these things, the word of Jehovah came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Jehovah God, what will you give me since I am childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. I want you to notice In that reply, Abram acknowledged that God's sovereignty was at play. Then behold, the word of Jehovah came to him saying, This man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your body, your own body. He shall be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look toward the heavens, count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed Jehovah, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So Abram and Sarah had this promise before them, given three times. Each time it was given, it was enlarged. In faith, they kept having conjugal relationships week after week after week. But nothing ever happened. And that's the background for Genesis chapter 16. In this chapter, we're presented with four players, Sarai, Abram, Hagar, Ishmael. And as we reflect upon the characters in this story, we can see them as representatives of traits and tendencies and Roles that we see all about us, and frankly, at times we see ourselves. This morning, let's allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us through this story. The first player that we see in the story is Sarai, a woman who took into her hands that which belonged in the hands of God. Two things pressed on Sarai. First of all, the desire to be a mother. For a woman in that culture, your worth, your esteem, your purpose was to bring forth a child. And if you did not give your husband a child, then the custom was to take another wife, even to put you away. It's interesting as we studied 
the history of the church, the first four centuries, how many Roman emperors we encountered and other people of power who when their wives did not give them a male heir, they executed them. Horrible thing to think about. She had not given her husband a child. But greater import was the fact that she had a part in the unfulfilled promise to Abram. She hadn't borne him a son. How could his descendants be greater than the stars of the heavens? She had failed as a wife. Now, reason could speak to her and say, you haven't failed as a wife. You didn't withhold your body from your husband. You've done your part. You're still doing so even though you're 75 years old and past the age of childbearing. You're still trying. You haven't failed. Your barrenness is not your fault. If God wanted you to be pregnant, you would be pregnant. You know... Such reason would have fallen on deaf ears, wouldn't it? How many times have we reasoned with someone whose inner voice tells them they're a failure or they've done something that has embarrassed themselves through some action or inaction? And you can speak reason and show how unreasonable is that inner voice, but you aren't heard. Because that inner voice speaks in the cavern where even a whisper echoes and is amplified from chamber to chamber, drowning out any other voice. Reason could not have reached this woman, and so she had to do something to silence that voice. And her clever human mind found a solution. There was an obvious one before her. Dear husband, take my personal slave, this Egyptian Hagar. Copulate with her. If she becomes pregnant, if she has a son, he will be mine. And that way all the things that Jehovah said will be fulfilled. All you have hoped for will come to pass. Why didn't I think of that earlier? <laughs> he was silencing the inner voice of failure. Her basic flaw was this. She misunderstood God's part and man's part. She was assuming responsibility for results and results belong to God and not a man. She forgot what Abram had said earlier to God. You have given no offspring to me. She began to occupy the role of God. Reminder, we're reminded of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians when he said, I planted Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither one who plants or waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Brother and sister, when we start to assume the role of God, when we become responsible, especially for things in His kingdom, invariably we become manipulators. Invariably we submit human methods. 
or what the Holy Spirit is supposed to be doing. I've seen this so often in churches. And I hesitate to give examples because I don't want to be critical, but I still feel the need to give examples. In the 1950s, there was an organization known as the Wells Foundation that began to help churches raise their income. And this organization would say to a church, if you ask us to come in and you sign a contract with us, we will drastically increase the income to your church and our fee will be percent, 15% of all the pledges that we receive. And they had this under the aegis of Jesus' statement that lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth for moss corrupt and thieves break through and steal and so on and so on. But lay up your treasure in heaven. And so where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so if we can get people to put all of their money in the church, then that's where their heart is and that's God's will. And so we're doing the work of God. And that was their reasoning. And so their scheme was this. They would come into the church and they would sign that contract and they would go to the wealthiest individual in the church who usually was somewhat generous and they would get this person to make a very large pledge. And then they would visit every member of the church, starting from the wealthiest to the poorest. And they would say, now, you know, we, we know that the kingdom of God is the most important. The church is the kingdom of God. And if you put your treasures there, of course, that's where your heart will be. And that's what God wants. How much can you pledge? By the way, brother, so-and-so pledged this amount. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, there was this sales manipulation that went on. I remember my mother who was cooking at, at school during the day and take showering and go cook at a restaurant at night. And they visited her. <laughs> now, every place they went, the offerings dramatically rose. Pragmatism says it worked. God says, shame on you. <laughs> you have manipulated people instead of honestly allowing the Holy Spirit to do its work. I can remember the years in which I was conducting revival meetings and preaching evangelistic meetings, all the techniques that were used to get people to come forward instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work. In the kingdom of God, our concern is obedience. His concern is results. We need to remember there's one arena that's his and another arena that is ours. Solomon, after he had considered all the issues of life, concluded Ecclesiastes with these words. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God, keep his commandments, the NAS says, because this applies to every person, the NAS is weak here. It leans upon the Septuagint. The Hebrew literally says, fear God, keep His commandments. This is everything to man. So those versions that say this is the whole duty of man are closer to the Hebrew. We're reminded of Jesus' words in the Great Commission. He told us to go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing the name Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then He said, 
teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. Obedience, in many ways we can say obedience is everything. Results belong to God. Well, as is true in so many instances, God did bring forth a son to Abraham and Sarah in a manner that only he could do. And he got the glory. Hebrews writing later about Abraham and Sarah said, Therefore was born even of one man and him as good as dead. (laughs) As good as dead. The response of the angel when Abraham and Sarah laughed on two separate occasions when the angel said, you'll bring forth a son, the angel said, is anything too difficult for Jehovah? An examination of Sarai's effort to give Abram a son reminds us that our role is obedience, and God alone is responsible for the results obtained from that obedience. When we start playing games, we become responsible for the results, and usually they aren't very good. The second player in the drama, of course, is Abram himself, who allowed himself to be persuaded by a pragmatic argument. You know, as I read about Abraham, I'm tempted to say, you you should have known better. Three times had this tremendous encounter with God. It's hard to think of anyone other than Moses who ever had experiences equal to Abram. He is the only man in the Bible who is called a friend of God. Now, Jesus said to his 11 disciples, I call you friends, and later he applied slave terminology to them, but this was sort of his band of merry men. They had traveled together for three years. They had eaten together, slept together use a latrine together. They'd shared life. And so he said, you're my friends. Didn't say it to anybody else, just those. But only Abraham, only this one man in all of the Bible, three times he's so-called, only this man is ever called a friend of God. What a relationship he had with Jehovah. You'd think he should have known better. But we can hear Sarai's proposition. God said you'll be father of many nations. Now, I want you to notice, my dear husband, in none of those three times that God spoke did he ever mention me. Always you. So the important thing is for you to have a son. Let's do the obvious thing. Take Hagar, my wife. You know, she has a son. It'll be mine. By the way, that's what everybody else does. Everybody else does it. Through him, God's Promises will be fulfilled. Now, it was reasonable. (laughs) It was consistent with culture. But it certainly violated all of the standards that Abram had shown up to that point. This man was as monogamous as any human being could ever be in a culture that wasn't monogamous. But he listened to a pragmatic argument. How many times in life do we face advice similar to that? 
I have one friend who for a number of years has been in a partnership with two other men. One of the two is supposedly a Christian. And things started to happen and the partnership started to dissolve and the one who supposedly is a Christian began to do various unethical things and take money from the company and the one who isn't a Christian, he did things anyway. My friend is wondering, what shall I do? And his accountant says, do this. And his lawyer says, do this. And my friend says, but God says, do this. (laughs) And they say to him, you're too ethical. We've never met a man as ethical as you are. You're too ethical. Compromise. I have a friend who lost his job because he would not compromise. Interesting, yesterday morning as I was meditating on Abraham, I got a phone call from another friend, and he said, you know, I've had my house for sale for a long time, and the man that's going to buy it uh, is looking forward to getting this stimulus money if he signs the contract by the end of April, and I've already a contract for another house, and if this one's sold, I'll get $6,500 there. I don't understand all the stimulus stuff, but... A bunch of money was involved. And there was some disagreement with the bank Friday about the closing costs. And all of that was not resolved until 8 o'clock Friday evening. And so the contract wasn't signed by April 30th. And they brought the contract over to my friend Saturday morning and said, sign it, but just backdate it. Well, I can't do that. <laughs> If anybody ever asked me, did you sign this on Friday or Saturday, I'll have to say Saturday. All sides, everybody was saying, sign it. (laughs) And he called me and said, what do I do? I thought, Lord, I'm right in the middle of talking about Abraham, and you present me with this question. How many times do we find that when we're preaching on something, God hits us with it? And that was as obvious as I've ever seen. I'll not tell you how the conversation turned out, but uh, I thought, how how interesting. (laughs) You know, I think of Bill Sullivan. When Bill Sullivan was in the PR business for years, he's told us that there were times when they were traveling in some distant city. And by the way, in the business Bill was in, it was not only what you produced, but relationships were important. And these clients with whom he had wonderful relationships, after the work day, they would head off to the strip clubs. Come on, Bill, and go with us. Now, relationships are important, and you sure don't want to break a relationship with your client, but Bill would say, I can't. I'm going back to my motel room. I commend our brother for not compromising his principles. You know, in the church... In our private lives, we face the temptation to compromise, and sad to say, often those who are advising us to do it are those who are closest to us. We have to stand. But Abram followed Sarah's advice, and the result was Ishmael. The beginning of problems that exist still today. The lesson that comes to us from Abraham's listening to Sarai is this. Don't let anyone persuade you to compromise God's standards.
The third character is Hagar, a helpless pawn in the hands of powerful people. Very difficult for us who live in our wonderfully free society to understand the life of a slave. One time it really hit me what it is really like was watching the movie Spartacus. You know the story of Spartacus, a true historical event. Spartacus was a gladiator, a slave. All gladiators were slaves. And whenever a gladiator fought well and did well, he often was rewarded with a girl at night. And there was one very beautiful Thracian woman that often was presented to the outstanding gladiator of the day. When the woman was presented to Spartacus, he received her with tenderness and said, Did the man hurt you last night? And she said, No. Shortly thereafter, Spartacus led the gladiators in a rebellion and really gave the Roman army fits. And this woman became his woman, his wife. And they fought the Romans bravely, but finally the mighty Roman army overcame them. Spartacus was crucified, and his wife was one of the spoils given to the Roman army. And she was presented to a wealthy patron of the emperor. Now remember in that scene as she was sitting in front of this wealthy man, and he began to question her, and in essence say, I wonder what I'm going to do with you. And I remember her words well. She said, I am your slave. You are free to do with me anything you choose. That hit me. But that's role of a slave. When I was in grade school, it was the custom to have singing class every day. I don't know if they still do that or not. <laughs> I mean, we had Horseman's Book of Songs, <laughs> and every year the color changed. I remember one of the songs we sang was my darling Nellie Gray, and I listened to the words of that song, and they touched me. I never fully understood it. I'm sure you know the song. There's a low and green valley on the old Kentucky shore. There have whiled away many happy hours of sitting and a singing by the cottage door where lived my darling Nellie Gray. One night I went to see her, but she's gone, the neighbors say. The white man bound her with his chain. They've taken her to Georgia for to wear her life away as she toils in the cotton and the cane. Oh, my poor Nellie Gray, they've taken you away. I'll never see my darling anymore. I'm sitting by the river. I'm weeping all the day for you've gone from the old Kentucky shore. Only recently did I learn story behind that song, when we ministered 
in a rural church in Ohio, Salt Air Church. Near the church building, there was a large three-story white house with a full basement. And in it lived one of the church members. And we often spent Sunday afternoons visiting that family, the Hall family. Now, I never really looked into this thing, but Barbara and the kids did. And this was one of the houses on the Underground Railroad. It was near the Ohio River, the first stop as slaves were escaping Kentucky and heading toward Canada. And Barbara and the kids tell me that they found secret panels, found secret rooms. I was always too busy, I suppose. (laughs) But it's a part of the Underground Railroad. The man who wrote this song lived in such a house. Near Columbus, Ohio, the second stop after Salt Air was south of Columbus and then on to Rochester, New York, and then on to Canada. And one of the slaves that visited his house was a man named Selby. And Selby said, I'm wanting to get to Canada to earn enough money to buy the freedom of Nellie Gray because the day before we were supposed to be married... She was sold from Kentucky into Georgia. And as Hanby listened to that story, he was a songwriter. He's a man, friends who wrote up on the housetop, up, 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 you know. He wrote this song. Touching, isn't it? But doesn't it picture the life of what it's like to be a slave? I recently read an article about a ministry that's working in women's prisons in South America. Most of these women are women that have been abused. They have been mistreated. They're totally powerless. And the people in this ministry said as they read the Bible and tell Bible stories to these women, the one they all identify with is Hagar. A helpless pawn in the hands of powerful people. Today, slavery exists all over the world. There's not a race of people that has not at some point been enslaved. Remember Patrick, St. Patrick, who brought the gospel to Ireland? Originally, he was a British slave in Ireland who escaped and came back with the gospel. Every race at some point has been enslaved. The horror of sex slavery in our own country is a shameful thing. Thank God there are courageous people doing something about it. All of us know people who are working in horrible conditions. And in this economy, some people working for very little pay and their employers know that they could be replaced. And so they mistreat them and they abuse them because they know really you're helpless. You quit. You can't find another job. What a helpless feeling. After being used by Abraham and Sarai, Hergel was abused to the point that she had to leave. She had no place to go. She just took off. But as we often say, God is not asleep. We hear 
compassion in the voice of the angel who converses with Hagar. He says, tell me your story. Where have you come from? Where are you going? And then he bestows upon her an amazing promise. And here's something that's often missed. Hagar is the first person in the Bible to ever give a name to God. Elroy, the God who sees. He sees even me, a slave. Remember the words of Jesus are not to spare a soul for a cent, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father. You are more value than many sparrows. The very hairs of your head are numbered. And the words of the psalmist in 139, you know it, we'll not read it. Now it's interesting that the angel said, go back to your mistress, Sarai, and submit to her. Sometimes God changes circumstances and sometimes he does not. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, he sees, he knows. And if the books are not made right in this life, there is a time when they will be in the hereafter. The lesson that comes to us from Hagar's account is this. God sees God knows the plight of those who are mistreated, used, and considered disposable. But to him, everyone is a person of worth. The fourth character is Ishmael, who is an innocent byproduct of other people's mistakes. Frankly, of all the characters in this story, he's the one that touches me most. Here's a little boy, through no fault of his own, even though he's in the family, he's still an outsider. And later, after Isaac is born, as little boys would do, Ishmael mocked him, and Sarah, by that time her name was changed, in jealous anger insisted that Abraham get rid of Hagar and Ishmael, and they were given a canteen of water and bread, and sent out. You know the story. The boy now was 13. They ran out of water. It looked as if they were going to die. Hagar put her son in the shade and went away where she couldn't see him because she could not bear to watch her son die. God rescued them, and even though Ishmael grew up to be a mighty warrior, he had to grow up without the love and care of an earthly father. How much of that, I wonder, made him that wild donkey that caused him to fight everybody, and everybody was his enemy. How many people do we know today who have been victims of bad parents, self-centered adults, children born with physical and mental difficulties because their parents were drug abusers, alcohol abusers, 
or abused them in many ways. Children who have been mistreated in their lives so until the day they die, they struggle with the scars and the results of their horrible childhood. When a father commits a crime, he goes to prison, but his children pay a price that's hard to describe. When a mother leads an immoral life, her children are scarred throughout their earthly existence. I happen to know three men who had immoral mothers, and to this day they struggle with issues of life because of that. One man I know went to 14 different schools during the 12 years of his schooling because his mother was constantly moving him to place to place as she took up with a different man. This man is burly. He could whip a bear. But he's inside a fragile little boy. I have another friend who had to sleep under the coffee table because his mother entertained men in her bedroom. That man has always had a miserable life, never able to combine grace and obedience with his own family. Harsh, because he never knew love. I know another man who today, again, is a pugilist. His mother was a prostitute in Louisiana. He only survived as a child because he could whip everybody on the block. He's the most goal-oriented man I've ever met. He'll reach any goal he sets his mind on, even doing it the wrong way. And he leaves a lot of wounded people on the path because of his mother when he was a child and the life that he led. My heart is touched by Ishmael. I think For the church, God has a message related to Ishmael. Whoever humbles himself as his child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. A caution. But what about those that we have among us? And we see in them the results of the kind of parents that produce them. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 I urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Father God, we pray that you would help us to avoid the temptation to be pragmatists. Help us to hear your voice instead of the voice of those who would tempt us to compromise. We thank you that your eye is upon us, O God, regardless of where we are and what our circumstances might be. 
We cannot imagine what life would be, O oh God, lived without you. We thank you that we do not have to imagine that, for we know the reality of your presence. Through Jesus, amen.